Hey, Serena. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Sorry, it's over on the Zoom link. Oh, it's no worries. <laughs> how are you doing? How's everything going? Yeah, everything's going really well. We're just, um, hey. this is my daughter's bedtime. That's why I was trying to, like, figure out the best time to talk. <laughs> got you, got you, got you. I just want to say thank you for accepting my invitation to come on my podcast. I really appreciate it. No problem. Happy to be here. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad everything is well, too. Thank you. You're welcome. So let's start with you talking about your life story from the beginning, from your childhood all the way up to present day. <laughs> okay. You want me just to jump in? Yep. Absolutely. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you're going to introduce the show or anything like that first. No, you're okay. <laughs> okay, got it. All right. So I guess, um, as you may have seen on my profile, I wrote a book called The Accidental Entrepreneur. And I felt like that book was just kind of always in me, um, just because I feel like my childhood had a really big contributing factor to how I ended up being an entrepreneur. And I think some of the qualities that you need just to succeed as an entrepreneur. Um, so for me, I had, you know, my, I, my opening line in my book is that I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth, but it tarnished. So that was something that my um, stepmother actually said to me when I was quite young. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I was born into this perfect family, like my mom, my dad, my brother, and then that kind of all fell apart when I was four years old. So uh, my dad left my mom for a woman at his place of work. And then um, a year later, my brother actually died in a pretty tragic accident at home. Um, so all of that stuff was really catastrophic. I ended up bouncing around between my mom and my dad, and then later on to an aunt and uncle. And then beyond that, kind of like with a boyfriend and back to my aunts. And, you know, there was just all these different things that um, led to a real lack of stability. And I think I learned at a very young age that I couldn't really expect anything from anyone. Like if I was going to make something of myself, like it really was going to rely completely on me. Like I was out there in, you know, grade eight and grade nine handing out resumes, even though I was too young to really be working. As I got older, I always had three or four different jobs on the go. I uh, ended up landing a scholarship to put uh, myself through university, which covered about half of the tuition. And then as I as I completed, what I think they don't tell you going through journalism school is how hard it's going to be to really make your way unless you're willing to move to a really distant place across the country or even to another country. Um, so I was offered an opportunity um, working in events and doing promotions. And I, I hadn't really considered doing that as a career choice. I had been doing that kind of work all throughout university. But again, I was pursuing journalism. I thought I was going to be like a TV broadcaster or news broadcaster. Um, so basically, I ended up transitioning into events and was offered an opportunity with Tigris, a company that was really just in its infancy. It was only probably six months old. And at the time, the woman that was running it really couldn't afford to be paying me. <laughs> so somehow uh, we had a, an opportunity with a city councillor that was willing to basically pay me full time and only have me to half the week. Um, she ended up kind of negotiating something where she said, you know, event planners typically earn 40 to $50 an hour. So if you can only afford to pay 20, then you can pay her full time and then have her like two to three days a week instead of five. How that flew, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> I ended up 
kind of splitting my time. So I was running events for that city councilor. And then at the same time, I was doing events, building up Tigris. Um, and then after that six month contract was up, the founder of the business basically asked me to accept a partnership. And I was still, you know, kind of hemming and hawing. Like I, I thought, you know, I'm still trying to be a broadcaster. I've been volunteering at Rogers for a while and had a very close call with NAM640 um, opportunity. And after a few rounds of interviews, that didn't pan out. So I accepted partnership. And really what that meant at that point in time is that instead of buying into a company that wasn't worth anything yet, I was basically assuming half of the debt. So at that time, I think it was like, $5,000 or something like that. Um, and then we kind of blew up. Like we landed big opportunities with um, some telecom companies and motor, um, and cell phone companies. And then from there, it just led into like bigger opportunities and stuff like that. About four years in, um, the woman that founded the business actually decided to leave for personal reasons. So I found myself at a crossroads. Uh, I just bought my first house and she basically told me that she was pregnant and it just, our whole world kind of got turned upside down. So um, she decided to leave instead of coming back to work. And then we just had to decide, you know, what's going to happen next. Do we close down the business and just walk away with whatever our retained earnings were at this point? Do I shop it around and potentially partner with another larger company? Or do I take the risk and buy her out? And this would have been in 2008. So it would have been like right in the middle of the recession, uh, just starting. So I just felt like we had built up enough goodwill and a good reputation in the industry that I decided to buy her out. Um, that took about two years in total. Um, and then I just decided to keep the business at home a while longer just so that I could kind of, you know, just make ends meet. It made more sense to kind of keep that money in the business rather than spending it on rent or something like that. So right. just over that period of time, continue to build and grow. Uh, I think we ended up at home, um, at least in my home <laughs> from uh, we were in her parents house for the first few years. And then we moved into my house in 2007. I ended up buying an office in Ajax in, I guess like end of 2014. So we moved in in 2015 and that allowed us to grow. So we went from four staff full time to six, and then we ran out of space in a matter of two years. So then we moved into another office that could accommodate 15 staff um, so we grew and grew, like we were up to 10 of us full-time, 2,500 part-time, uh, and then COVID happened. <laughs> so you can appreciate that that wasn't easy. Like you can't really run an events business when you're in lockdown. Um, exactly. We weren't the type of company that could really um, pivot into virtual events. We did have some clients that, you know, their specialty was conferences. So every conference became a virtual conference, but for us, we would do trade shows and sampling programs and in-store programs and all of those things just disappeared. Like most of those things weren't even open. And in fact, you could get like pretty significant fines if you're caught doing anything. So we went into lockdown for six months and we're out for six months. And, you know, it was just this big um, roller coaster for about two and a half years. So um, ironically, I had tried to sell the business two to three weeks before we went into the first lockdown and it had nothing to do with COVID. Um, the girl that I promoted and trained to be my maternity leave replacement, um, she resigned when my daughter was just like two and a half months old. So that came as like a really big shock. And I was like, how am I supposed to run this business when I have an infant at home? I <laughs> so believe it. That was hard. So I hired a mergers and acquisitions company to try to sell the business. And, you know, due to COVID, like there were some, there was some interest, but it was obviously challenging to try to, to sell. And then I scaled my team back from, um, 
the team that we were down to just one person, just so that I could have support when work did come in. And she resigned in January of this year. So at that point, I just, I went back to the mergers and acquisitions company. I just said, you know, you've had two years to try to sell this. There's nothing left. Like the office is gone. My employees are gone. I knew I didn't have it in me to try to build it up to what it was. I couldn't scale that quickly. And to be honest, I just, I felt like I'd moved on to other things at that point in time. So I just requested a mutual release so I could go and approach other agencies to buy our website because our SEO was really strong. And um, I had about 15 agencies that I talked to, had about six that were interested and had four offers. So I had it sold in about two weeks. <laughs> so nice. Uh, that was like literally from start to finish the best way I can uh, sum that up. And um, kind of along the way throughout COVID because the business wasn't really operating. I also got my real estate license and then took time between all my courses and exams to get my book published and, and out there. That's definitely a lot. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> before we continue, I just want to say two things. Uh, I want to say sorry for your loss with your brother. Thank you. You're welcome. And congrats on getting your real estate license. Thank you. You're welcome. That's definitely a lot to take in. Um, with your loss of your brother, overcoming everything that you told me and then getting your real estate license, able to cram that in and being a parent at the same time. That's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, it obviously helped that my business wasn't operational, <laughs> but <laughs> I think one thing that I had done and why I went into real estate specifically was that I ended up joining an organization about four and a half years ago that teaches all different kinds of strategies as a real estate investor. So there's a lot of things that people don't, think of like they just think I'm going to be I'm going to buy a house with if I can and I'll be a landlord uh, but there's a lot of other things that you can do so there's pre-construction opportunities there's land development people raise money to buy properties there's multifamily. there's buying underperforming properties that you can kind of fix up and then reassess and refinance um, and for me the big bread and butter that saved me during all of this with COVID was going into private lending so I didn't even know that was a thing um, I had access to a pretty large home equity line of credit because I had our home reappraised in 2017. So I ended up doing a few loans to start and then it kind of led into like a few more. So I think in the first year I did three or four, uh, in the second and third year I did eight or nine a year. And this year I think I'm up to just shy of 30. <laughs> so wow, <laughs> um, I'm able to make like a pretty comfortable living passively. In fact, I've, you know, almost probably like close to doubled what I took in my best year from my business. So the whole thing just um, was really, really interesting, just learning about that and the opportunities. And it's basically just using the access to money that you have. And I think as long as you understand, it's like it's income earning debt and you're still smart with the money that's coming in and stuff like that. There's a lot of opportunity that, you know, a lot of people probably don't realize. And a lot of people say to me, like, that sounds so risky. But like, to me, it's like having one source of income at a job is like, way more risky. Like I don't put all of my money into like one person, but I might have 20 borrowers all at the same time. And if they're borrowing money from you at 12 to 20% and you're paying three to five on your home equity line, you're obviously making the difference. So that was kind of how I was able to not have a meltdown during COVID and right. you know, cover my <laughs> lifestyle. And at the same time, I took maybe two mornings a week to work on my real estate license, usually a couple of weeks of studying for each exam. And then I would take two to three, two to three weeks off in between courses. Cause there was, 
seven courses in total. Um, and then I would take that time to work on editing my book and the whole publication process. Nice. And I know when you start like borrowing like these loans and stuff like that, I know you were like, what the heck am I getting into? <laughs> yeah, well, I just like I said, I didn't I didn't know much about I really didn't know anything about it. And I think yep. it was just the stars aligning where this particular company used us to staff some of their events in Texas and Florida. And then they were bringing their wealth tour to Toronto maybe six months later. And at that point in time, I'd sold a property I owned in Florida and I just didn't know what to do next. So I kind of just held on to the money. I was like, what do I do? What do I do? And then this thing just kind of came up. So when I went to their first investor summit, you know, I did a lot all at once. And then you're kind of just become part of that community. So it starts to open your eyes to all different things that are out there right now. And subsequently I've joined a mastermind group that just started this month. And I'm just seeing some of the crazy things people are doing later. You know, people are acquiring like millions of dollars in real estate and they're using other people's money to get it. It's like, it's just something you can't even fathom. Like right. raising like $10 million or someone came on our, um, our group the other day and they raised $122 million in 10 weeks to acquire what? property. And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's what I said. What? <laughs> I know. It's just crazy. But again, it's just stuff that the average person would be like, how long is it going to, like most people can't even afford to buy their own house, let alone a rental property. But I think if you just open your mind and you have to be aware, like you can, you don't have to be attached even to where it is. Like the two properties I owned weren't even close to me. Like one was in Florida, one was in Edmonton. So as long as you have the right team in place, like there could be opportunities to buy something at a lower cost that could cash flow better than maybe where you live. So it's even just thinking about stuff like that. Like you don't have to be limited to, you know, 10 kilometers from your house or 20 kilometers from your house. There's so many different things that you can consider. I definitely believe it. As long as you believe in yourself, have faith, God, I believe will take care of the rest. Yeah, a hundred percent. And do your due diligence. Like, don't just like <laughs> throw money around. You know, no. I would always come, I would always, um, you know, just make sure I had a clear understanding of who the people were, ideally get a referral. Because I have my real estate license, I can also do due diligence in the sense of looking people up to see if they're on title, if it's a secured loan. Um, so there are things that you can do, like even ideally working with people that are kind of have a proven track record of success. Um, so I think that's important and just diversifying it. So instead of, again, putting all your eggs in one basket, like I would ideally work with, you know, a number of people. It's not, and if one thing goes wrong, at least it's not going to like end you, you know? Right, exactly. There's other things going on. It's not like you said, you put your eggs in one basket and then it goes left and you're like, damn, now what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so your next topic is what are some of the biggest lessons you learned as an entrepreneur? Yeah, uh, so there's definitely been a lot of them. Um, so I think one of the biggest things is that I didn't have anyone to kind of show me anything for the first eight years. Like I completely was winging it. When I look back at some of the stuff, I'm like, how did anyone hire us? Like this stuff looks awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what I ended up doing was hiring a business coach about eight years in. She was very expensive. Um, but my two big takeaways from her were to start looking at our numbers. So I didn't really understand like the purpose of a financial dashboard, how to use it or what things I should be looking for. So I never had a sense of how profitable we were. Like, yes, I knew what was coming in, what's in the bank, but like 
I didn't really know how to look at that properly. So that was one thing that she showed me. And then the other thing was talking about how to put your retained earnings to use. So at the time, you know, I would be happy knowing I had like a year and a half worth of operating costs in the bank account so that if anything went wrong, like I can cover a lot no matter what. And she just said, you know, most businesses operate on three months or six months of operating costs. So she encouraged me to take some of the overflow and to basically put it into an investment. So that's how I ended up buying the condo that I did in Florida um, as a short-term rental and paid it off over four years and then basically doubled my investment. So that was something where I borrowed the money from the business. I had it, you know, till the end of the following year to basically pay that back. And then I got the first HELOC on my primary residence. And between, you know, those two two sources, I was basically able to buy that. So I think that was really smart. And going ahead, that's, you know, where I continue to put the overflow and the excessive funds into other things so that it's, your money's working for you, not just like letting it sit around. Um, and then beyond that, I ended up securing, I think, probably four or five mentors. So I think the, the goal is like, you don't know what you don't know, right? So I think the right. purpose is trying to find people that you can learn from and hopefully get you to your goals faster or give you more of a roadmap to get there. Um, one mem mentor that I had that was probably the most helpful out of all of them, like totally deconstructed my business. Like he's like, why are you spending all this time on bookkeeping? Like, you know, and at the time I couldn't figure out how do I communicate to someone all these people we have to pay like on any given week we could have anywhere from like 20 to 200 people to pay so how do i communicate mm. that to a bookkeeper that doesn't work in the office so we ended up developing a system to communicate that hired a bookkeeper and then our sales you know it was a combination of things like we started doing search engine optimization and then hired the bookkeeper and then our sales basically doubled from like the one year to the next so it was definitely a combination of of those two things um we had been primarily referral based. So kind of around the same time, about eight years in, we lost our biggest client. And I was like, we're going to go out of business if people can, like, if we don't get some new companies coming in. So I started investing in SEO, didn't totally understand it, but we were getting good traction at the gate. Um, but then as time passed, I started investing in digital marketing training. And even now it's like our SEO is so strong that if you search you know, Toronto event staffing or Cal Calgary brand ambassadors or any keyword combination, like we rank organically on the first page of Google for literally hundreds of keywords. And that's really what became the value to the company after COVID hit. Um, so had I not done that, not only would we probably have not survived, um, but it wouldn't have necessarily been worth anything as an agency when there's nothing else kind of going on, I guess you can say. Um, so those are probably a couple of the biggest things. Um, another big learning was that, um, I was part of a, an executive leadership group or an executive mentoring group, and they had advised us to create two things. So one's called a green box. Um, have you ever heard of that before? Yes. So the green box basically is like, if you died tomorrow, like how would your family basically figure out anything? <laughs> so <laughs> the green box basically has like your identification, your passwords, your policy numbers, like all of those important things, obviously keep it 100%, like 150% secure. And then at least that way, like if anything ever happened as a business owner, there's far more complexity than just your average person working a job. So that was one thing that I developed. Um, and then the other thing was creating playbooks uh, for basically each position in the company. So that way onboarding would be much easier. Like it not only tells you what has to happen, but how to do it and like has pictures and everything else. And that way, instead of taking like a month to train someone, they could be pretty much brought up to speed in like a week. And then they're just 
doing the work. Um, so kind of having all of those things was not only helpful for employee onboarding, but also when I was looking to sell the agency and explain to other agencies like how we operated and how we conducted work so they could accommodate the work that was coming in. All of that was a lot of value. Nice. And I think one thing people have a problem with is putting their pride to the side and just asking for help. Sometimes it's the best thing you can do. Yeah. No, you absolutely need to. Like, I think that a lot of business owners struggle and, um, you know, for the first 10 years I worked a lot and then it felt like once I got to the point where I was able to start delegating, whether that was bookkeeping or even some of the work, and I was able to just focus on bringing in business, that's where we really started to have a lot of growth. And obviously you can't get ahead of yourself. Like if you don't have the money to pay someone, like you don't have the money to pay someone, but it was like that catch 22, like, yes, I'm going to spend this money on bookkeeping, but if it's freeing me up to bring in all this business, then it's worth it. So it's just trying to make those calculated risks so that, um, again, you're just mindful of your time and what the business needs while managing your budget at the same time. As I like to call it, the pros and cons. Yeah, 100%. So your next topic is, what would you recommend to a parent or child who is going through a divorce in their family? Okay, so from the parent side, um, I would definitely say do your best to try to keep your emotions um, at a minimum. <laughs> like I, I can say looking back, like I can understand why my mom was as upset as she was like not only to lose her husband and her life but then like one of her children like there was a lot wrapped up but she was also like the most angry person ever like totally a woman scorned there were so many times that i felt like i was stuck in the middle or they'd be kind of screaming at each other or if my dad was dropping me off late she would just go out and at the end of the day like that punished me like that took the time away that i had the limited time that i had away with her so that wasn't hurting my dad, you know, and I just think that um, there was a lot of things that my dad, and my stepmom did to fuel that and make her even more angry. But the only person that really suffered was me. So I think if I was ever to find myself in that situation, I would just try to do everything possible to just remain, you know, calm and patient and just try to put like my daughter first so that she never finds herself in a situation like that. Um, I think as a child, I think it really depends on the age that you're at. Like, yes, it was hard for me, but I was so young. Like, I think that kids are far more adaptable when they're like very, very little because they don't really understand the full scope of maybe what's going on. And they can just kind of, not to say turn a blind eye to it, but in some ways where I look at other family members that I have, and there's been quite a few that their parents split when they were, you know, in their mid-teens. And they totally just fell apart. Like they took it so much harder than I feel like a lot of the people that went through it when they were younger. So I'm not going to say there's, um, you know, a good, neither situation is ideal. Um, but at the same time, I think that teenagers, you know, they've got hormones running rampant. They can be really emotional. So I think that can be a lot harder to deal with. And in that case, maybe that's where the parents have to provide even extra support compared to like when the kids are small. Um and I think the other thing is just when you do have children that are going through this, um, you know, try to be mindful of the things that they really want and need. Like, I remember being very sad when, like, my mom's side of the family always got together on Christmas Eve and my dad's family always got together on Christmas Day. 
But because I lived at my dad's, he always wanted me there on Christmas morning. So I always missed both big family functions. So I missed all my mom's family and all my dad's family just for the purpose of being there on Christmas morning with my half sibling, my stepbrother or my, my half brother. And it was just like, it was so sad. Like I remember just calling sometimes and you kind of just hear everyone's voices and like, you're missing seeing everyone. So I feel like, you know, there's a lot that I missed out on with both sides of the family, just because of how young I was when my parents split, um, whether that's like cottage weekends at my grandmother's or like Christmas or like different family functions. So I think, you know, as parents that are trying to you know, go through this with their kids, I think trying to be mindful of that so that they don't, they don't lose out more than they already are. And I feel like the most important thing also is that the child involved in the situation is reassured that they're not being forgotten about, even if both parents are not in the same house. Yeah. I mean, I would say I definitely felt like that more at my dad's and my mom's because with my mom, like, I, I became her only child when my brother passed away, but for my dad, like he, my stepmom had a daughter when they kind of got together and then they had, um, their first child together pretty much like, honestly, almost to the day, like nine months after my brother passed away. So I definitely felt, I definitely felt that divide living with them and my dad had his own business, so he also wasn't home a lot. So it was usually like my stepmom, my stepsister, and my half-brother. Um, so I very much felt that. Um, my dad probably didn't even know like half the stuff that was happening like at home in his absence. Um, I, yeah, I can't speak to maybe where his head was at during those years. Like I think he was just so focused on his new life and like building his business and all of that that he probably wasn't paying attention all that much. So my next uh, question to you before we move on, how is your relationship with your parents today? So with my mom, um, she ended up losing her job in, I think, 2008. And she ended up moving in with an aunt of mine around the corner. So she literally lives like eight houses away walking distance. <laughs> so <laughs> even though it's like it was a really awful thing, like she lost a lot of her independence and stuff like that. Like it's been really really nice having her so close especially during COVID like you know there's not really many people that we were seeing but she could at least walk over for like half an hour or something like that and we could see each other outside where if we live further apart like that would have been a very different experience so my relationship with her is definitely fairly strong and it's kind of nice that I feel like we were able to like make up for lost time because I didn't live with her from like age six to 18 and then I lived with her for a few years from maybe 18 to 21 and then I I moved somewhere else again. Um, and then with my dad, like, we're fine. Like, we see each other maybe a couple times a year. Um, you know, we text here and there. But, you know, in contrast, like, I feel like I've really tried to, you know, I'll have him to a restaurant for, like, a really nice Father's Day dinner or for his 70th birthday. I planned, like, a big um, event, like, a surprise party with his family and stuff like that. And in comparison, I'll get, like, a text message at 10 o'clock at night on my birthday. So I've just come not to like expect anything from him. Like, it's not like I need anything lavish, but like, it would be nice to be like, Hey, what are you doing for your birthday? Should, can we get together for a bite to eat or anything? Like, it'd just be nice to like have that kind of acknowledgement. But I think just because he's got, um, you know, so many other kids at this point and he's still working at his age, like, I think he's probably just not, 
even aware it's my birthday till like it's almost too late, if that makes sense. So I've just come to understand that that's it. That is how it is, and it's probably not going to change. Well, I don't think you're asking for much to from him to spend more time with you. Not like all the time, but just stay in contact with you. So yeah, so it is what it is. Like I like I said, I, I'm like. 41 now <laughs> like I'm not a kid <laughs> so it's not like I necessarily need that validation the way that you do when you're much younger but we went through so many periods of time that you know we didn't talk um so yeah I mean it, it is what it is I try to make the most of it and extend that to him and um yeah that's all I think I can do yeah you only live one life you can't spend it chasing after somebody who's not trying to put the same time in to spend time with you that you want with them yeah, exactly. So your next topic is tell us more about how digital marketing supported the growth of your business. Yeah, I mean, it was really, really pivotal for us. Um, we had been building basically with referrals only from 2004 until 2011, 12. And then we had one client that we were working with for about six, seven years or very much our biggest client, like 60 to 70% of all of our sales. And then in 2011, they really scaled back. Like it was a noticeable decrease, but then we had another client that did the opposite. Like they were maybe like a hundred thousand dollar a year client and they came in and did, you know, 500,000. So they did like a substantial amount of work. Um, and then we kind of knew, like, as soon as that was kind of winding down, I was like, I was had the chance to catch my breath. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, our very biggest client that we had for many, many years is gone. This other client's not going to repeat the same volume of work going forward. So what do we do? So I hired an SEO company. I interviewed three or four before I decided on one that I wanted to go ahead with. But I feel like that's kind of like hiring like a mechanic. Like if you really don't understand anything about cars, they can tell you whatever and you really don't, you don't know. Right. right. Um, so I ended up investing in, um, all of this digital marketing training with a company that basically taught people how to do targeted keyword research and then analyze it based on the number of daily searches as well as the competition. Um, there's actually a platform that has since closed down. They closed down last year called Market Samurai. And that would allow you to kind of analyze all these different keyword combinations. So we started writing blogs uh, based, based on kind of this formula and this model that we learned. And then we just started to get all this organic traffic to our website. And it honestly paid for itself like millions of time over. Like we had companies from all across Canada hiring us across the United States, the government of South Australia, companies from Europe. And they would basically search, like I said, something like Toronto event staffing, or it could be Calgary brand ambassadors or Vancouver event planners or whatever it might be. Um, you know, local experiential marketing agencies. And we just went from maybe a hundred quotes a year, the first year that we did it. And every year we gained a hundred more quotes with each passing year. So by the time COVID hit, I think we were at 750 quotes. And that was based on, you know, we started in 2012 and this was now 2019. Um, and for this year, like, I think, you know, obviously like COVID still is playing a big part of it and I'm I'm no longer involved with running the website or anything like that but I think we're still up to a few hundred quotes for this year which is a pretty good rebound coming out of COVID and all the restrictions that we were still in right at least you were able to rebound that's what matters most 
Yeah, I mean, if anything, it's just, um, like I said, I was worried about scaling it up. And even though I'm not directly involved anymore, I still have access to the email and I still see all the incoming inquiries that are like net new. And then once a company has been kind of introduced to new owners, like I'm sure there's far more quotes that I'm not even aware of. That's just the ones that are coming through the website or clients that, that didn't, um, didn't know that we had transitioned into a, a merger. Gotcha. Um, so as your daughter gets older, what life lessons do you want to teach her? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think I'm a big believer in, um, experiences over things. So I definitely want to be able to take her traveling to various places. Like, I think you can learn a lot from that. And I think, um, you know, I want her to learn how to be self-sufficient. I think for me, like I followed that path of entrepreneurship because I, I had to, like I had no one handing me anything. Um, so even though we have things like an RESP for her and like we have a separate savings account. So whenever she is given gifts or for example, when we started to sell some of her baby stuff, any of those kinds of things basically go into a savings account that'll probably be for like a new car. But I feel like I still want her to be accountable for herself. Like I just don't want her to think she's got some easy road. Like I think I would even maybe say that she's got to pay for half the car. And then at the end, after she's paid it off, like I would reimburse her the other half or, you know, same thing in university, like may cover half of her tuition, but she has to cover the other half so that she's responsible for what she's kind of involved with instead of just everything being handed to her. Um, So we're going to work towards figuring all those things out, but I do want her to understand how to be, you know, proactive and persistent and, and accountable for herself. I just want to say um, you're a great mother because a lot of parents don't teach their kids this when they're young because you run into trouble when your child gets older and they become too reliant on you. Then they don't want to go out and work and make a life on their own because they know they have that safety net at home with their yeah. parents. Like, oh, no, they're going to take care of me no matter what I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, and that's just it. I didn't, I really didn't have, like, it's not like I was ever homeless, but I mean, I definitely bounced around between family and at one point, like an ex-boyfriend. And, you know, I, I did what I had to do during those times, but it's not like I just had my mom and dad to fall back on where I knew I always had a place. Right. So I think it just gives right. you a whole different perspective and outlook on things. Absolutely. It makes you stronger mentally and emotionally. Mm-hmm. So your next topic is if you had to do it all over again, what would you have done differently in your business? Okay. So I think uh, one thing that really stands out to me is not only once I learned this lesson, not only once, but twice, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but um, for our, the nature of our business, I think there's a lot of technology that could be leveraged to make things easier. So back in 2006, we had a, one of our event managers was kind of like a computer programmer. He basically pitched us on developing a portal and it made sense. Like I understood the concept, but basically when he gave it to us, it was like, you'd almost need to have to know how to code to basically actually use it. So that was, I think maybe only like six or $7,000 out the window. And then years later I had the idea, like the way that we would collect availability, you want to see not only everyone that's available, but you also want to see on a shift to shift level, like who's available, who's not. And it takes a lot of time. Like if you're reaching out to like our roster in Toronto is like 800 people and you have a hundred people reply, just inputting the availability takes so long. And there's all these other things that we just do back and forth by email. So again, I started to 
talked to my team and they're all saying they wanted a software, make it easier, this and that. And I, I literally, I think, spoke to 40 or 50 different platforms that are schedulers and stuff like that. And literally nothing allowed you to see everyone's availability in like a full picture. And I was like, well, you can't just go out in and out. Like if you're booking someone for 10 days, you kind of need to see the full grid. Like if they're only available for two days, you probably wouldn't book them. You want to book the person that's available for 10 because chances are you'll book them for like six or seven. But you do need to see like everyone's availability all in one place. And there was kind of like a template that we used to use in Excel to, to see that. So because I couldn't find an out-of-the-box product that really met our needs, I went down the path of hiring developers again. <laughs> this time at a far larger cost. Um, I think we were quoted 45000 We went about 20000 over budget. And then when it was finally done, literally we just couldn't get our staff to use it. Like we tried and tried and like no one would adapt to using it. Like we just couldn't get them all into the system. And then there was also some um, some things that weren't working the way that we wanted it to. And at that point, it would have cost us maybe another like twenty or 30000 to make it like really what it needed to be. And I just couldn't justify spending the money. Like we invested two years into it. We spent 65000 probably plus interest on the loan that we had for the first forty five. Um, and just because the staff were not responsive and like pretty much just wouldn't use it, we just had to walk away. And like that was like a a big cost to stomach. <laughs> so, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, I'm not going to say don't be innovative, but, you know, developing something like that, it's a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of frustration. It could have been something amazing that maybe could have even been proprietary that I could have sold. But the reality is it just, it ended up kind of being dead in the water. So if I could go back, I probably wouldn't have wasted all that time and money trying to do something like that. We ended up, adapting to using Google Forms where we could send that out to make it easier for staff to apply and then just kind of continue doing what we were doing just because, again, there was nothing that existed that truly offered the view that we really needed to see. It would have just like complicated things even further. As I like to say, life is our biggest teacher. Yeah, definitely is. Um, I also will say we all like to have a time machine to go back in time to fix things in life. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Right. Like, why did I make that decision? Come on. I know. Like, I can understand why I did. Like, you know, my team wanted me to innovate. And, you know, I think that as a small business owner, there were two challenges that we experienced. And one was with technology. I think sometimes finding something that is really like what you need it to be. And then the other side would be creative. So when we were pitching on larger projects, like a lot of the time the client want to see what your idea is. We didn't have anyone in-house to do that, but it costs a lot of money to get it done for a proposal. So you could spend like $5,000 on a rendering and then, you know, you're one of many companies being considered. And if you don't get it, that's money out of pocket. So I think that those were kind of our two, two biggest challenges that we kind of experienced throughout like the entire time that we ran the business. Right. Especially when you're running your own business, always some obstacle is going to come up. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we just struggled finding the right partners for those kinds of things. Right. Everything like in life takes time and then it eventually all comes together. Mm -hmm. So what is the hardest thing you've learned as being a parent? 
how to operate with like so little sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. Trust me. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like my daughter's really good. Like I think the most stressful time that we had was honestly in the first couple of weeks um, where I was trying to breastfeed and I just, she just wasn't getting enough nutrition and she kept losing weight and, you know, crying excessively. And we just learned, like, I just didn't have the supply that she needed. So that was honestly probably the biggest challenge, but she's honestly, she is very good. But I think it, just as a parent, you wake up to like every little thing. Um, she did kind of start sleeping after four months, which is really early. Like I've sometimes seen people that are like, my daughter's 15 months and still not sleeping through the night. And I'm like, what? But I still think it, it really like does mess with your sleep over the long term. Like I haven't had like a solid night's sleep in like, since she's been born, <laughs> like I'm always waking up periodically during the night, wake up really early. I have like reverse insomnia where you pass out really quickly, but then I I'll wake up at like three 30 in the morning or like four o'clock in the morning and she's almost three and it's still happening. So I don't know how people have like three kids or four kids. I'm like, do you just never sleep again? <laughs> like, I don't know. So that's honestly been one challenge. And I think the other thing is just trying to balance your time in the sense that you can't, it's not your time anymore. So trying to juggle the fact that like, if your child's with you, like, it's not like you can just like take off the way that you once did. And during COVID, like we didn't even take her to the grocery store for two years. So, you know, you definitely have to balance your time. And I am fortunate that my husband's got a flexible work schedule and, you know, my mom lives close by, but there's a lot of people that don't have that kind of flexibility or support. So um, I think that's been definitely like a big learning curve, just kind of working around that. Right. Being an entrepreneur and a mother at the same time and a wife, it can be difficult to balance all these things. Mm -hmm. But like I said, you're a strong woman. You always figure a way out. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, there's, I've, I've even said that to my husband, like there's people that, you know, if they had the kind of job where they had to be physically there, like one challenge we had when my daughter started daycare last year is how often she was sick because she would get sick, then we get sick. And then she's not in daycare anymore. We're all sick. And I'm like, what do people do if they had real, like if we had to be at a nine to five job every day, like we would have been fired like for the amount of time like, <laughs> that we actually had to be home, like because she was just sick so often for a period of maybe like seven or eight months. And that's not uncommon. Like that's pretty normal for most kids that are starting daycare, but I have no idea how parents do it. Cause you can't leave them at daycare when they're sick, especially if they have a fever. So like, I, I just, honestly, I don't know how other people do it. No, you guys are fortunate to be blessed to, have careers where you're able to balance the time between work and parenthood. And if something goes left, you're able to go check on your daughter or yeah. whatever may be the case. Yeah. So at this point in my pod, I always turn over to my guests and you can ask me any question that you want. Hmm. Well, I guess what I don't really know much about you because we just got connected recently. Um, yep. But I guess since you've been running all your podcasts, what's probably been the best insight or advice that you've ever received from any of your guests? Um, so most important thing I've learned is to how to balance, have life balance between work and being a father of two, um, how I'm be able to manage money properly, um, 
controlling emotions better. I've learned a lot from different people. Mm-hmm. So I try to take these um, life lessons and put it all together into my daily life mm-hmm. as well, too. I just try to take life one day at a time, not get too high, get too low, just stay on an even kill. Um, my oldest just turned 10 a couple days ago. Oh, nice. So I just try to maintain a steady balance in life. Yeah. Yeah, it's important. I mean, I think um, at the stage that I'm at now, when I think back, you know, my business was so consuming. Like, and when you're in events, that's a lot of evenings and weekends. And you just push through it. Like you do the 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. um, And then eventually you get to the point where, you know, you can delegate and you can start to have like more of a work-life balance and stuff like that. And it's like, I think once you get there, like you can never go back. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I just think like you kind of come to this new reality and it's like, um, yeah, it's just, you definitely can't go back. Yeah. There's no turning the page back. You only can turn the pages forward. Mm -hmm. And then when you get some rest, you try to take advantage of every second that you can. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> um, so before we end this, um, is there any last message you would like to leave with the listener? Do you have any future projects coming up? Also, do you want to share your social media handles as well? Okay. Um, so I guess for me, I, I did share that, you know, my investment strategy has been largely focused on private lending, um, but my focus is to work towards multifamily uh, properties. So yes, I have my real estate license and I ideally I'd like to be working with at least two to three clients a month. But on the personal side, I plan to go into to multifamily and I have been looking at properties in the East Coast as well as throughout the prairies. So I'm not 100% sure what that will look like at this point in time, but that's definitely in the future cards. Um, part of the reason I joined the mastermind that I'm a part of now is to learn more about you know, apartment syndications and multifamily and all those different things you need to know. Um, I think that's a good way to help mitigate risk is just to educate yourself as much as you can. Um, And then I guess in terms of my social media handles, so I've got a couple that I use for business. One is related to business and entrepreneurship and the stories from my book. So that's at Serena Holmes author. So it's S-E-R-E-N-A Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S author. And I also have one that's pretty much the exact same, but realtor on the end. So it's Serena Holmes Realtor um, on Instagram, Facebook. Um, find me on LinkedIn if you want. Uh, but those are the primary sources. Nice. Y'all make sure you follow her. This is a busy woman. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to say, Serena, once again, thank you so much for accepting my invitation to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, enjoy the rest of your evening and the weekend ahead, too. Great. Thank you. Take care. You, too. Bye-bye.